Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. I am Gina B, and the place to be is here with me. It's Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is the Fox Den. Uh, last week I had on Sarah Weisman, Messages from the Divine. It was an awesome show. I love her book. I'm sorry I won't give it away because I'm going to be using that for many years to come. You have to get your own copy. It's a it's really inspirational book. Um, tonight, tonight is going to be a really interesting show. Hi, everybody. Please share the video. I would appreciate it. My guests would appreciate it. Um, I have David Arkenstone Barnett. He is from New Zealand, so he is calling from the future. He is actually at his noon tomorrow, his time, and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for us here in the USA. So let me tell you, I'm going to read his bio, which is quite lengthy, so, you know, bear with me, okay? He is a metaphysical entrepreneur. David Arkenstone Barnett has been a researcher in the, into the UFO phenomena for over 30 years. From his past official encounter with a USO, unidentified submerged submerged object, while serving in the Navy in 1987, to his own personal close encounter of the third kind in the South Island of New Zealand, David has had contact with intelligent beings, both terrestrial and extraterrestrial, in origin, and have helped in in origin, who have helped him to uncover and understand the UFO-Atlantis connection in both Antarctica and Canterbury, New Zealand. David has been on his own powerful uh, spiritual path and personal development path since 1973, when his family became involved in transcendental meditation, and he still works on his growth on a daily basis to better understand who he really is and what he is here to do. He's also a photographer, an artist, a professional singer, a lover of life, who has lived in Christchurch, New Zealand for over 20 years. He has three beautiful kids who has had a deep and powerful relationship with, and he does too many, too, too wait, I'm sorry, <laughs> again, I should be wearing my glasses, but I don't. Um, and uh, she has three, three children who he has a deep and powerful, powerful relationship with as he does to, with many of his wonderful friends who he shares his incredible path of spirituality and self-discovery with. Whew. So, <laughs> okay. So, David, hi. Hi, Gina. God, I think the two hours is actually over and done with after just reading that bio. I, right. So uh, Good night to you all. Thank you very much for having me on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. Share the video, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Exactly, yes, it's been lovely. Look, thank you, Gina, for having me on your show. Um, I'm really honored to to have been invited by you to be here. Uh, uh, And I think it's quite funny, as we were saying before, I don't think people actually realize the lengths that it's taken for you and I actually to be able to be talking right now because uh, your show is probably one of the only shows you can actually say, hi, I'm actually coming to you from the future. So, uh, yes, here down in New Zealand, yeah, it's pretty cool. So, yes, it's just gone midday Friday here. Um, so thank you for having me on your show. Oh, you're so welcome. You are so very welcome. Um, so, so David, why don't we just jump right on into this. And um, Now, where are you originally from, and when did your journey into the metaphysics begin? I think you can sort of just pick up, uh, there's a slight English accent to, to, to me, 
And even though I've been in New Zealand, gosh, this November will be 33 years that I've been in New Zealand. I'm originally from uh, London. Um, So, and as it says in the bio, yes, I had a very interesting upbringing because um, I had both a religious and spiritual upbringing. And I'll just explain what that means. I was actually born and brought up in the Jewish religion. And Ah. even though my parents, yeah, so even though my parents were not uh, Orthodox Jewish people, we did celebrate uh, the, the festivals and so forth, especially with my grandparents. Uh, and I did attend um, synagogue on a Sunday, so I did have Sunday school. So I was brought up being taught the, the traditions of the Jewish religion, the Old Testament, um, and that's what I understood. But at the same time, and as it says in 1973, Uh, the Maharishi brought transcendental meditation into England. Uh, And for those who are old enough to remember TM, it does exist still today. Um, The Beatles sort of made it acceptable and famous. I think they went over in 68, 69 and spent a few months with the Maharishi uh, at his ashram. So when it was time to bring TM into the United Kingdom, it was far more acceptable because, you know, the Beatles had done it. And in fact, um, in 73, when it came over, uh, my parents um, jumped straight into it. And in fact, my mother was uh, one of the very first uh, administration ladies for the center. And our home became the official meeting place for all TM members. Um, So um, it it may sound like that I'm pretty old when I say, I know I was in, in, in 1973, because if you work out maths-wise, I've been on a personal development spiritual path for over 45 years. But I was actually only five years old when uh, TM came into the UK. So if you do the maths, you can sort of work out how old I am now. But um, my experiences of an early childhood were both religious and spiritual, which made for a very interesting um, experience to grow up in but what it did do and I'm very grateful for what this did was it actually allowed me to have at a very formative uh, time of my life uh, an incredibly open mind to all things and I'm very grateful for that because here I am as I say learning about God uh, Moses and all that goes with that in Old Testament but now I'm also hearing the words and being part of uh, the teachings of a guru from, you know, uh, Eastern philosophy and so forth. And it allowed me to be able to bridge the gap between the two sides of this coin. And I've grown up that way, and I've always been that way, that I am able to bridge the gaps between all things. And I think that's a very important uh, element to have in a person's life. Um, so, and then something very interesting happened. I don't know if you know in the Jewish religion, when a boy turns 13, he has what's called a bar mitzvah, oh, which yeah. is the transcending from boy to, to becoming a man. Yeah. And it's, in the Jewish religion, it's a very important uh, part of your life. And yeah. at 13, I was being taught uh, the, the, the process and the proceedings of the bar mitzvah, you know, reading from the Torah and so forth. And then something very interesting happening, which was the, the rabbi, the local rabbi from our synagogue, actually called my parents in for a meeting. And he gave them a choice. And he said, we know that you are following a guru. We do not agree with that. Um, it's not part of the uh-huh. Jewish religion. 
And your son is, you know, has a, well, you have a choice, which is you either choose God, uh, in which case your son may continue to have his bar mitzvah, or you choose to follow your guru, in which case he will not be able to have his bar mitzvah and you will need to leave the synagogue and the congregation. So that was a pretty hard one, especially for my mother, because they thought at this time that the bar mitzvah was really important to me. And to be honest, it wasn't. I was really struggling with it. Um, I was very fearful. The teacher that I had was, was pretty harsh on me. And I wasn't learning it very well. So I was actually really scared of having this bar mitzvah because I thought I was going <laughs> to really mess up. the Because the, the, well, you have yeah, to do it all in Hebrew. It's, you have to sing that yeah, too, so right? You would do. And of course, you're not speaking, a, a, it's not in English, it's in Hebrew. So I was learning Hebrew. So what, what happened was they came home and uh, my mother was in tears. And she said, look, we've had a meeting with the rabbi. He's given us a choice and we're choosing the guru. This now means we're so sorry. My mother threw her arms around me. And she said, you're not going to be able to have your mitzvah. And I, I instantly, I said, and I could, I, put a, I could have won an Oscar for the act I put on and the tears came to my eyes and I said it so and inside I'm going yes thank God for that because I was really not wanting this to happen so um, that was the path that we continued with so our home from a very early age at five our home was to say the central meeting place for TM and I grew up with people coming along for you know meditation nights um, potluck dinners uh, there were people wearing strange kaftans and fezes and beads around their necks and chanting. And, and for a young lad, it was, it was uh, a wonderful uh, experience um, and one that I remember even to this day. It was, it was fascinating. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of joy. There was a lot of togetherness. And that's the, the experience that I've had uh, from then on. Um, yep. And as I say, they were with TM for a few years, and then another guru came from from India, um, and a lot of the TM people sort of jumped on board with what was called BMS, the British Meditation Society. So once again, uh, and at nine years old, sorry, eight and a half years old, I was actually initiated into meditating, um, and I still have the original papers that were written with my mantra, uh, who initiated me, the process that I went through, um, and, I, uh, and I was meditating. So from eight and a half, I actually started meditating, to which I still do today. That's um, awesome. So, so uh, and as I said, I had an incredible experience of having uh, the ability to have an, in, uh, an open mind to everything. And by having that, I think that really gave me a strong foundation in all the investigation work that I've done over the last 30 years. And USOs and UFOs is just part of it. Um, I've researched into the legends of King Arthur, um, uh, dolphin strandings, which I'll talk about later, and how everything sort of ties in with a big picture. Whereas as I was growing up and over the years, I was taking uh, pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, a piece over here and a piece over there, um, and as I moved along and, and, and had experiences of my own or read books or met people and they gave me new information, I was able to build an even bigger jigsaw puzzle that interlinked everything that I was actually working on. And I discovered that nothing is actually individual and separate, but in fact, historically, all these elements fit together to create one big picture. 
And it's, you know, as an artist, it's like when you paint and suddenly the painting pops alive and you go, wow. Um, it's the same with everything I was doing when suddenly I read something and it bridged two pieces of that jigsaw together and I'd go, wow, that makes sense. That actually follows through with this and that. And now my picture's yep. even bigger. So, yep. um, so that, let me ask that, you, that, so, sort of a, yeah. if, you, if you're doing all this and you've been meditating since you were nine years old, why and how did you join the military? In, in what you were in the Navy, correct? <laughs> Well, I didn't actually join it for the military experience. I, uh, I joined it because I was fascinated with uh, what are known commonly as cetaceans, whales and dolphins. And that played a very important part in a, uh, a few years later when I wrote uh, a paper um, in regards to the whales and dolphin strandings and the relation between strandings and UFOs, which was called the derailment theory. And I'll talk about that possibly a little bit later. I actually wanted to experience the technology of sonar, and I became a sonar controller. Um, and so I'd already been around the world. I'd, lived, I'd actually come from Israel. I'd been living in Israel for a year, which was an incredibly powerful spiritual experience living there. Um, yeah. And when I came yeah. from Israel to New Zealand in 85, um, I had already started work on, the, on UFOs and dolphins and so forth. Uh, and I needed more experience and more understanding. And I decided to have a little time in the Navy so that I could understand the principles of the sonar technology um, and how it, um, how it equates to cetacean, the cetacean research that I was doing. So I only spent a couple of years or so in the Navy just to have and get that experience. And the New Zealand Navy is an, a good navy to join because it's not a defensive, sorry, an offensive navy. It doesn't go out there and challenge anybody. It's purely a sort of a coastal defense uh, navy, and therefore we didn't really do a lot of, you know, um, uh, we never had conflicts or issues and so forth. And from a spiritual point of view, I was very pleased with that. It also gave me a great sense of discipline. Um, not that I was undisciplined in any way, um, but it gave me, it, my mother loved it because it taught me how to iron. And she was thrilled with that, that I knew how to iron beautifully and sew. And to this day, I still iron beautifully and can still and sew. So she well, always said it was a great experience just for that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, once I served and uh, once I got that understanding, and in fact, I think I was, you know, synchronistically guided to that because of the experience with the USO, which really changed my life. Uh, in a very powerful way, and I would not have had it had I not joined the Navy. So you can see how interesting it is. But I understand your question. It does seem slightly contradictory, but it was synchronistic because it allowed me to experience something very profound that led me on a very different journey. Um, right. But we already Our knew that... Is very different. <laughs> Our is. military is very different. <laughs> you know, you oh, join yes. and... Yes. I think everybody is petrified as soon as they join because you never know what's going to happen here. <laughs> well, and especially nowadays. <laughs> I really feel for people in the U.S. I really do. You should all come to New Zealand. It's a fabulous country. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so once <laughs> I served my time and had my experiences, I, I chose it was time to leave. And yeah. um, again, synchronicity stepped in because I went straight into the security industry, which again, you'd think, 
on earth would you want to go into that industry? But even there, I had a profound security had a profound effect on me, and it has done for the last 30 years, and it ties in with all the research work that I've done uh, in regards to the UFO phenomena, uh, and ultimately, which led me to Atlantis and the Atlantis Rising Project, which is obviously what I'm doing here in Christchurch. So all of these elements um, took me along a path that enabled me to have gain information and knowledge that I just would not have got had I gone in, a, in another direction. So, uh, well, and I, I can look back now and, and see that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, our paths, do you believe that our paths are, are like laid out for us, um, like predestined, I mean, to make all these things happen to fall into place? And you being in one place at one a... time, you know, could be the yeah, answer to I mean, that. Thing. I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a powerful question, and I know that would be probably another two-hour show just on that question. For me personally, though, I, my answer is uh, I do believe that. I believe that there's a synchronicity which we create whenever we make a choice to do something. And I believe, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've made choices that have led me down particular paths that I've had uh, maybe this way of saying maybe not so favorable outcomes. I'm not talking terrible, terrible things, but things that I've, I've hit a brick wall, and, but I was always very much aware that life presents opportunities to learn and to grow from the experience, whether it's uh, you know, positive or what can be deemed negative. Although there is no such thing, you know, um, I often say to people, there's no such thing as good and bad, only that which we say it is. So for me, I always take the experiences that I've had that were maybe uh, a little bit more painful and say, okay, um, as much as it hurt, thank you for the experience because, boy, am I a better person for it and I won't go down that particular path again. So um, yep. even in the military, in the Navy, I, you know, um, I had some experiences that were uh, rather frightening. I was what they call the life boy century. So if somebody fell off the ship, I'd have to don the diving gear and go over. And we were in the middle of the Pacific. They decided to do a, a mock maneuver. They threw a mannequin off the side of the ship. Uh, they stopped the ship. I jumped off um, and apparently and it, nearly into an entire herd of hammerhead sharks. Um, and I didn't know that. As I'm swimming out to get this mannequin to draw it back in, the crew suddenly go onto the top of the bridge and start firing into a, well, I didn't know what they were doing. They were firing across into the water to the right of me. And then it turns out when they got me back on the ship that I had, there was a herd of 15 hammerheads coming towards me. So oh. that, that was an interesting experience. Uh, I didn't create anything bad happening, but it could have been the other way around. So, oh, yeah. um, but yes, my answer then, yes, is I do believe that there is definitely a synchronicity that plays out and, um, you know, and that the choices we make um, are there to help us to grow and to learn. So, yes. Absolutely. All right. So now, while you were there, you had this encounter with this, this unidentified submerged, submerged object, so a USO, not a UFO, a USO. All right. What, um, how did this all come about? What happened? Um, well, we already knew from a military point of view, that we were, we'd actually had um, contact uh, even in uh, where the naval base is in New Zealand is in um, Auckland. 
which is the largest city of New Zealand in the top of the North Island, and that's where the naval base is. And we would sail back into uh, the harbour, uh, which is called the Waitemata Harbour, and we would actually have our sonar systems on, and we always, well, not always, we, on a very regular um, frequency, we would have contact with submerged objects that would follow us back into the Auckland Harbour. So we were aware that there, were, um, that there was something going on there. Um, but, of course, at that time, there was no, there was no investigations. It was just simply, um, it could be a, a school of fish, it could be this, that, and the other. But there were objects that would fairly regularly follow us back in. So from a military point of view, uh, we knew something was happening there. But this event happened... Uh, way out in the Pacific. In fact, I don't even know the location of where it exactly was because we were closed up for what's called defense stations, which is when the ship goes into a war game with itself. And we're closed up in uh, pretending that we're going through a war situation. So, for example, um, you're in action stations 24 hours a day for about a week. Um, you're working for eight hours a day, sleeping for 12, then working for 12 and sleeping for eight. And you're doing that all day, every day for about a week. So you lose touch with where you are and what time it is, basically. And you're all wearing your anti-flash gear like you see in movies, the guys wearing the white masks and the gloves and all of that. And so we were closed up for defense stations. And it was around about one o'clock in, uh, in the morning. Uh, and so we were somewhere in the Pacific, but not too far away from, from New Zealand, put it that way. Um, yes. And if you can sort of imagine, I have to sort of create a little image here. So there's a group of three guys. We're sitting behind a, uh, a large uh, com uh, computer slash sonar system, which, uh, which is called a G750. And you have one guy in the middle with a screen, and he has um, the traditional, um, as, when you think of sonar, you think of the, the, the sound pulse pinging and coming back. And that's exactly what it sounds like. So you've got me sitting in the middle uh, with, a big, with a screen in front of me and two tracker balls in which if I identify a contact when the sound bounces and hits an object, it creates a target on my screen. And I roll a circle on a, uh, on a tracker wheel to that object. So the circle then goes around that object and I push what's called an enable button. And when you push that enable button, the computer basically takes over and gives you as much information as it possibly can, Doppler, which is speed and, very, um, and size and so forth. Um, you've got a guy sitting to the left of you. He's got another system, and you've got a guy sitting to the right of you, and he's sitting there with another screen, and that's what's called the HE, or the hydrophone effect. And his job is to basically listen to the sounds of the ocean, and he can verify if he's listening to a man-made object or if he's li listening to um, um, cetaceans, which is your whales, uh, isothermal mm -hmm. uh, la layers, which create bubbles and so forth. And, but he can identify and uh, tell what is man-made and what is of natural origin. And with its man-made, um, submarines, for example, different navies use different propellers that have different mm -hmm. blades uh, of different numbers. Uh, some have three, some have four, some have five. And what we do is we record the sound of the, the, of the object. We play it back. And this is, now, by the way, I'm talking in the 80s. It's all digital now. But in those days, it was reel-to-reel, test scan reels. It was fairly ancient, but for us, it was high-tech. 
So you record the sound and you play it back slowly and you can actually pick up the number of blades going through the wake of the submarine and you can tell what type of submarine it is based upon the blade. So anyway, so you've got the guy there listening to the sounds of the ocean. So around about one o'clock in the morning, an object is detected or gives a return echo on my system. So I go into uh, placing my tracker ball and uh, push the enable button. And this object was approximately 20 kilometers dead astern of us. It's right behind us, following us on a parallel course. So we were traveling around about 25 knots, which is fairly normal uh, for that type of ship. And this object was following us at a relative speed. So we tracked it, and now the, obviously the job that we do is to hunt out or you know, verify submarines. That's what sonar people do. And we had picked up, in those days, it was still the Cold War, so Russia was still in our, uh, around our waters in those days. And we, we often found the odd one or two. So we went into the normal process of eliminating whether or not this was a, uh, a natural uh, phenomena. Um, but of course... It, it didn't because it was actually following us at a relative speed. So the bridge, the order was to come through to change, uh, port starboard, change speed. But this object continued to follow us uh, in the relative directions and speed. It stayed continuously on that course. Now, because it was facing towards us, we weren't able to get a size reading. But it wasn't until, and this is what start, suddenly alerted us, that this was something different was we turned to starboard, we did a sharp turn to starboard, and so did the object. And then we were able to get uh, a ping off its actual length, or it's, it's, you know, along the beam of it. And it came back as being around about 800 feet in length. Now, the largest submarine, which still is the largest submarine, is the Typhoon-class Russian submarine. And they were around about 550 feet in length. So they were the, la the length the longest and the largest submarines that we had on record. But this thing was 800 feet plus. So we wow. knew that this was something very different. So then we turned to <laughs> the right to the... the are, are you sorry? in contact with, with your like superiors during all this? What are they telling you to no, do? No, 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 no. After the actual event, we actually had to sail directly back to Wellington and report to the Admiralty. Um, so that did happen after. But during the event, we were still not clear what we were dealing with. So um, the, the guy in hydrophone effect is obviously listening, and he wants to listen. Is there any mechanical screws? Is there any sound? So he's recording. Uh, the information came back that there was no sound whatsoever. Now, for those of you who have seen the, the fantastic film with Sean Connery, The Hunt for Red October, you know yeah. what's called the Caterpillar Drive, which is a very feasible um, piece of technology. So we're thinking, even though it was before that movie, we're thinking along the lines of a, a silent drive system. We had heard of them. Um, so this, this object produced no distinctive sound that could be uh, recorded at all. It was silent. Once again, that alerted us that this is something very, very strange. So we just continued to keep monitoring what was going on. Now, there's only a handful of, crew actually operational at this time because of course everyone else is fast asleep it's now around about 1.30 in the morning so um, on the bridge there's a bit of a concern obviously sonar we're all down there scratching our heads wondering what's going on for about another half an hour this object continued to follow us and then something pretty amazing happened which was that the object suddenly sped up 
and it came screaming up behind us at a phenomenal speed of which no man-made object is able to do. We're talking, well, I actually don't know, but it just went from 20 kilometers behind us and in a matter of seconds was instantly going underneath the ship. And as it went under the ship, the ship just lost all power. Everything wow. just died. And I'm wow. talking not just generators. I'm talking the backup batteries that would normally click in down the main drag of the ship so that we could see where we were going. The batteries were all drained. And suddenly the ship just stopped and we were now completely adrift, powerless. Oh now, I'll always, I'll always remember because there was a slightly, uh, there was another um, sonar system which is called a 177M attacker. Now that one creates not like the one I was sonar system I was sitting, which creates a 360-degree uh, omnidirectional beam of sound, which is what you traditionally see on films. The attacker creates only an, a beam straight ahead at an arc of about 45 degrees. And it's called attacker because it comes online, or the, the transducer is turned towards and it comes online if an object is detected, because then you're only needing a small arc of sound to actually... Um, ping off. You're not needing omnidirectional. So this attacker sonar is suddenly uh, screaming because it's creating a return echo that's getting faster and faster and faster and faster as the sound is, is bouncing off this object as it's coming. And I just remember seeing the stylus. So in those days, we still had reels of paper coming off with a stylus going across like an old fax machine. And the stylus was just getting faster and faster and faster and faster as the object was coming towards us. And then suddenly, it all died. So wow. suddenly, we're sitting there in pitch black. And I mean, it was pitch black because you're inside the heart of the ship. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. And suddenly, there's a call out from the officers that now we need to get, because we're now adrift, we need to get the crew out of bids and onto the flight deck because now we're actually adrift there is a possibility that we could hit a reef or something like that. So the next job was to get everybody out of, the sh out of their bunks, and suddenly you've got, within about 10, 15 minutes, there's 250 crew standing on the flight deck of the ship in pitch blackness because you've got no exterior lights of the ship and you've got no uh, land around you to give you any idea of where you are. And I remember... That other ship emitting any kind of light at all that you could see? No, gone. No, completely gone. We had no idea where it went from there. It wasn't in the vicinity, and so there was no lights whatsoever. But I remember it being probably one of the most profound moments as well because I remember um, we were standing on the flight deck and I looked up and I had never seen the, the sky at night when there is literally no artificial light of any, any sort and it was just the most extraordinary bright white um, that I'd ever seen. And that's why I always remember the moment because it was so romantic. And if you're looking, if there's ever a time when you say, I was looking into the face of God, it was like that moment when I looked up and saw trillions of stars and no artificial light to diminish them anyway. And it was just so profound a moment. So it took about an hour that we were adrift until the, the engineers were able to, and I'm not an engineer, so I don't know how, but they managed to get enough, um, they managed to get the steam turbines operational again. Um, and that obviously produced power that got the, 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 the generators going. And we were able to then, uh, at a, a limp basically, sail back to Wellington, where we then um, the, uh, reported to the, the Admiralty. 
And I remember uh, one of the officers coming into the sonar control room and he said, you know, that we were sworn to secrecy um, and that we were not to discuss, you know, obviously what had happened. And in 2000, uh, the New Zealand military um, uh, dis um, disclosed all the UFO files to the public, um, opened them up for, and there's, obviously you can go online and read a lot about, but this is never in it. This was never released because of the, the, the depth of what we experienced. So mm. you can read certain things just, about UFOs in New Zealand, but not this one. Right. Let me just kind of recap for some of the people that are just joining. So he's, he's in a ship in the middle of the ocean, right, military ship, yep. and they're tracking this other ship coming towards him, and it was coming straight at him. So the sonar that he does, the radar, Right, was coming straight at him. Couldn't tell how long it was until it turned sideways. Then it was 800 feet. There is no ship, not even today, that is 800 feet a submarine. The biggest is 550 feet. Now this thing, it it's going with them. It's following them, and then all of a sudden it goes underneath them, and their power goes out, and they're adrift, and then disappears. So basically, that was it in a nutshell. And that's that's pretty wild because like even you know. You could kind of think about it as you know in, in those days in the eighties and whatnot you know if they if it was a Russian ship and if they did have new technology, you'd still you know like a a thing that they could zap out your power you know uh, send a a pulse or something that could knock your your um things offline, but to be eight hundred feet long, that throws that right out it does yes, um and you're absolutely right um the technology to create an electromagnetic pulse, um, you know, it does exist, but at that time, um, and, and, and I think, again, if you go back to the question of why did it happen, um, and to a New Zealand, you know, warship, why of all warships that are, that are sailing the oceans at that particular time, why, why did it decide to connect with us? Well, I'd like to, you know, think that it, well, it did, because that, that experience actually really changed my life. It was very profound, and there was a handful of us, there was only a handful of us that were um, uh, um, actually part of that scenario because the majority of the ship's company were asleep. All they knew was the aftermath when suddenly they'd been woken from their lovely dreams to get, get the hell out of the ship and get onto the flight deck. Um, so there was only a handful of us that actually knew what it was all about. Um, and I'd like to believe, and I do believe, that it happened because it changed my life and changed the direction of where I was heading in my life, so um, that's my that's my belief anyway. I, I think that's a, that's amazing. I mean, everything and for you to keep calm and everything during all that. I think your your meditative uh, background helped you along with that too. So I think yes, everything culminated brought you right to that point, right specifically to that moment. Mm. And yeah, life changing definitely. Um, and then you had to keep quiet for uh, uh, twenty years or so. Right about that incident, and then it, again, then that wasn't even put out there. So, are they are they yes. still wanting you to not talk about it? <laughs> I mean, it's too late. I've been talking about it for twenty years or more, to be honest. Yeah, right. And they might do to you, you know. But um, but okay. So so now that you've gone through this. So this this was the USO, the unidentified submerged object. Now you've also had ET encounters. Um, both, uh, both kind. Well, 
just just tell me tell me your first ET experience. The first ET experience happened um, when in 1988 um, my family moved from. We were living in Auckland, and I was working in security in Auckland, and. This was around about the time when globally there was like a new age philosophy that the earth changes were coming, uh, the, the world government was coming, um, and you needed to um, get out of big cities because those weren't the right places to be. Uh, they weren't safe um, when the sort of the economy was going to crash, and all of these things were sort of really being hyped up in the, um, the mid to late 80s. And... Um, my parents decided to get out of Auckland. They were teaching personal development, by the way. Um, they, had an, they, they were teaching with an, an enormous organization that had come out of Australia. So they were personal development teachers. And so they were teaching all over New Zealand, thousands of people. Um, and they decided that they would get out of the big city. And they moved, of all places, down to the deep south of the South Island to a, a relatively small town called Gore, G-O-R-E, which is a real culture shock, even for New Zealanders, because you're going from the big city of Auckland to the deep south, which is very still, still relatively colonial in their, in their behaviors, in their attitudes. And um, there's a lot of sheep um, raising there and cattle raising and so forth. So you're going from one extreme to the other. And I was working in security. I was doing well. I had a good lifestyle. And it, but I believed in the direction my parents were going in. So I up and followed them down and um, uh, actually started a security business in, in, in the township of Gore uh, doing night patrols. But my family moved on to a farm and it was owned by uh, a young couple and they had, my parents had a house on the property, and, which was a lovely place. Um, and one night I, uh, I used to stay over at their home every now and then just to, say, to see them. And it was on this particular night that something very, very powerful happened. And there's two parts of it that actually is the original part that started in 1988, or actually, sorry, 1989, and concluded in 2016. And I'll be succinct, but I'll explain why. Um, so what actually happened was, is I wake up, it's three o'clock in the morning, which is, for a lot of people to understand, three o'clock is actually quite a profound uh, time. It was 3 a.m. and I remember looking to the right of me and seeing the, the clock. And I was awoken by a high-pitched hum, which was coming from one of the paddocks next to the farmhouse that my parents were in. Mm-hmm. And the, what really struck me first was the fact I couldn't move. And I literally mean I couldn't move. My arms were by my side, but I was paralyzed. But I could hear mm-hmm. this high-pitched, it sounded like a generator, that was very high pitched in its frequency, but I could move my neck and I could see the, um, the neck curtains billowing out towards me because my, it was summer. Um, and therefore it was so warm that my, I had my window open. And I remember these curtains, uh, lace curtains blowing inwards and I could hear this sound, but I couldn't move. So eventually what seemed a long time, but may only have been a few minutes the, the high-pitched sound increased in um, frequency and literally rose to a squeal. And then I, I could fathom that it was going up. And it just increased in, in sound and in frequency and up it went and, and it disappeared. And that was the end of it. And I lay there for a few more moments and then I was able to move. 
Now, let me just explain something that in this, the deep part of the south in New Zealand, farming community are, re- are very, very colonial. They will never believe anything. Like if you said UFOs, they just look at you, not sideways, fully in the face and say, you're, 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 in, you're an idiot. They're very <laughs> colonially, they're hardworking people. But they just do not believe in any of this sort of, I mean, personal development and spiritual, you'd be burnt at the stake. It's as, it's as still as, it was fairly still old-fashioned in those days, not so much now, but it was then. In the morning, I spoke to my father about it, who was, like myself, very much aware of UFOs and so forth. And he, he actually said to me, why the heck didn't you wake me? I said, because I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't move. <laughs> Anyway, so I went out of the farmhouse and I bumped into the owner of the farm who was in his early 30s. So he's a relatively young guy, but he'd been from farm, his his third generation on the farm. So he's, you know, um, very colonially minded as well. But I said to him, uh, his name was Robert. I said, Rob, did you by any chance have a piece of farm equipment operating at round about three o'clock this morning? And he said, no, nothing whatsoever. Why? And I said, well... I've had this experience, um, and I explained what happened. And I expected him to sort of just look at me and turn, shake his head and walk away from me. But he didn't. He said, this is very interesting. And I said, why? He said, our son, um, Christopher, who was only five and a half at that time, Christopher woke he and his wife up at 3 a.m. And Christopher's bedroom, by the way, his windows looked over at this particular paddock where I could hear the sound. And he said, Christopher woke us up at three o'clock saying, and his exact words were, Mummy, Daddy, there's an angry kite in the paddock and it's eating people. And they had no idea what he was talking about. And then he said, and then it ate the people and then it disappeared into the sky. And those were his exact words. Now, Robert sort of looked at me and said, no. We had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. We went into his bedroom. We looked out. There was nothing there. But I actually, and I'm sure people listening to this who understand um, what this little boy was saying would, would actually comprehend what he was experiencing. He was obviously translating that into the words of a five-year-old. But he saw right. an angry kite. And when he meant angry, it was black. It was the shape of a kite. So slightly triangular or diamond shape in, 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 um, uh, in its look. It was dark and he could see people coming in and out of it or ultimately going into it. So his interpretation was it's eating them. And then, of course, the people go up and then suddenly this object disappeared. Up it went. Suddenly, oh. this guy, Robert, who's, who's a colonial farmer, his whole life changed in that moment because he's hearing what I heard. He's then piecing it together with what um, his son has explained. And even his colonial mind had no understanding uh, for what actually was happening here. Now, the reason why I say this now transcends to 2016 was because I always grew up, or sorry, I continue from then on knowing that this was my experience was only 50% of what actually happened that night. Something else has always niggled in the back of my mind that this isn't the whole picture of what actually happened. I can consciously remember being paralyzed and this mm-hmm. billowing, this billowing, it was actually very white, very white um, neck curtain billowing in. So when I was actually in Auckland, 
I looked for a, 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 something I've never done in my life before. I wanted to be hypnotized because I wanted to know if I could touch or get in contact with the other half of what actually happened. And so I found uh, a hypnotherapist, uh, a lady in Auckland, and I, on the phone, explained to her what I've just shared with you. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, do you think this is something you could help me with? And she said, yes, of course, I I have no problems with this. I believe what you're talking about, and I'd like to help you. Now, I'm a person who, even though I'm very spiritually minded, I didn't believe that I could be hypnotized. Um, You know, you see shows and so forth, and he clicks his fingers, and everybody instantly closes their eyes and starts clucking like a chicken. Now, (laughs) I really was very um, hesitant about this, but I went and saw her, and she sat me down on the couch, and we spoke for about 10, 15 minutes, And then she just put me into a state of meditation and then said, um, I'm going to count back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, She she told me I was under within about three seconds. So um, the next thing I remember is me waking. It was 25 minutes later and I'm bawling my eyes out. Now she recorded it all. She asked my permission. I said yes, and she recorded everything. Now, when she played it back to me, it absolutely, A, it, it, um, it had a double sort of thing. I was, I was relieved because it actually confirmed to me what I had thought had actually happened. And the experiences I spoke about was that I said to you earlier that I saw the, the, the net curtains blowing in and it was yeah. very bright. They, they, they seemed incredibly white. But then, of course, I was triggered. The fact I didn't have net curtains in this bedroom that I was in. They only had thick curtains. They were pulled back because I had the window open. So there were never any billowing white um, net curtains. It was actually this incredibly powerful white light. And the next thing I remember is I'm walking out of the, through the window. I'm going through the window and I'm actually walking across the lawn to this object. Now, I'm actually not walking on the ground. I'm about six inches off of it. And I'm walking, and I can remember in this, in what I'm actually presenting in under hypnosis, I am talking about moving across the ground, and I'm being led by two of these beings who are incredibly white, uh, very bright. And I go to this object, which was further down the paddock, in which I meet others that are there. And then there's a communication between the two of us, and they are talking to me about pretty much what I'm working on now. And, they, and so when I'm talking, I'm talking in their voice. So when I listen to the, the recording, my voice sounds very different. Um, and when I came out of it in the end, as I said, there were tears, but there were tears of joy because, A, I had finally over, over 20 years later an answer that I wanted, um, but also yep. it actually, once again, it put me onto the journey of which I'm on now, which was the Atlantis Rising right. Uh, project and it was from that experience that I started to research more profoundly the the history and then the connection of Atlantis to this region so that was the first experience and it was very (laughs) profound as you can appreciate oh my god yeah so okay so did did you actually get a copy of the recording that she she had yes I did yes yes I've still got it on my computer yeah Wow. I'd like it, to hear it, that. It, it, it's, always, it's, it's very powerful to listen to. It also sounds quite strange because I don't hear my voice. 
I'm not listening to my own voice. I'm listening to a, a different voice. But yes, I do have it. Ah, I, I would really, really, seriously like to hear that sometime. So, have you? What what mm-hmm. other EP experiences have you had that you want to share with us? Um, well, the next really fascinating one. I moved from Gore uh, to uh, a beautiful um, further north to the top of the South Island to a place called Nelson, which does have quite a profound um, UFO connection. Um, there's been a lot of UFO activity in that region, and I was researching uh, the UFO phenomena very, very powerfully for quite a long time um, and visiting places and talking to people. And I got known in the area as being you know, the UFO guy. And this, this, the next connection sounds incredibly ordinary and almost comical when I say this, but it's exactly how it happened. I was actually in the local supermarket and I was at the, the, the meat section or the deli section just looking at it, holding my basket, and a man came up to me. And he said, hello, and I turned and looked at him. And I actually took a little step back because he looked very strange. And when I say strange, the first thing that jumped out at me was he had the strangest head I had ever seen. It was very bulbous, almost like his forehead was jutting out rather Neanderthalish, but not in that sort of heavy eye set. It just seemed very strange. And he wasn't a very tall guy. He may have been you know, five feet, maybe slightly shorter. But he, he came up to me and he said, hello, are you the UFO guy? And I just looked at him and I said, yes. And he said, he said uh, and this is where it gets comical, he said, my name's Ashley Gray. And that was his name, Ashley Gray. And he, really? said, he said, would you like to know what's really going on in the world? And he meant the technology, the spirituality and so forth. And yeah. I said, I, <laughs> yeah, sort of along those lines. I said, okay, yes. Um, with a, an inquisitive look in my eye, which I think he picked up on. And he said, look, um, he said, I, 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 um, I know what's going on, Area 51 and the technology and so forth, and I'd like to share this with you. Um, would you like to visit my home tonight? And I said, hell yeah. So he gave me an address. <laughs> He gave me an address, and I, uh, the home was slightly away from Nelson, uh, about maybe high, um, 10, 15, 20 minutes just um, um, out of Nelson, um, up a, a driveway that goes up into the hills and through woodland and so forth. And there was a, because it's 8 o'clock, it was already dark, and the home itself was... Um, Did you go by yourself? It was, uh, it was what, sorry? Did you go by yourself? Yes, I'm by myself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, the home was like, uh, what we call over. Were you armed? <laughs> we were not armed. Do that. <laughs> I no. say, I'm sorry. I we... have a great. <laughs> it was, I, I was armed with a great deal of trust. Put it that way. Um, yeah. But his home was what's called a solid log and timber home. So it was like natural um, um, beams, you know, wood and so forth. But it had a lot of glass around it. So. When you drive up towards it, and of course it was lit up at night, it looked rather like a spaceship because you've got all this um, beautiful light shining through enormous windows all the way around the house. And that's my first experience of it. So anyway, he, he greets me at the door. And for the next four hours, he sat me down. And I don't think I actually said a single word in four hours, which is really rare for me. Uh, um, 
and I drove. I remember driving out or driving away, and it was exactly midnight, and I had a migraine headache. And the reason why I had a migraine was because it was information overload. And yeah, he that. spoke to me about, you know, crystal technology, um, the different types of technology, the different types of extraterrestrials that are here. He spoke about that in years to come, there was going to be what he called uh, a mighty battle between extraterrestrials of light and extraterrestrials of darkness um, and that in our skies we would see these encounters there were beings that are traveling now from enormous distances that have been traveling for centuries in our time centuries and millennia they are going to be so he spoke about all of this um, in our lifetime and it, so to say i mean in 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 like when what what part of the future um, well, if I was to say pretty soon, that would that would probably, without saying an exact date, <laughs> uh, it's pretty soon, and it's already been happening, and it's already happening, and I think a lot of people ha- are aware of that. But it's uh, it's pretty soon. Um, okay. And again, that would be another that's another subject for another day. But anyway, um, he gave me the information. I went away. He he would appear seemingly out of nowhere for another period of a few weeks and months, and then. I never saw him again, and um, I've tried to locate him. Even with when Facebook came along, I, you know, I've tried to locate him through that, and of course there is no, um, he's not there. And I went back to the house, and it was um, there was nobody living there anymore. And um, so that was again a very profound, and it sort of just fitted in with everything that I was working on at that particular time. And again, it bridged a lot of those jigsaw puzzle pieces, again, to create an even bigger image, again, which has helped me to, to be working on the Atlantis project. So that was the next one that, that happened. Wow. That, these, these stories are just, like, profound and amazing. And um, now what year was that? This is around about 1991, 1992. Um, and like, as I said, so it was the, a really... Both things have been, like, in that time frame, like the 80s, early 90s, you know? Why do you think that is? It was just a particular time when I was um, in just in in the right frame of mind. I I had done, uh, as I said, I did a a, a research into what was called the derailment theory, and this really was quite profound as well. And as I was saying to you, I was investigating strandings of whales and dolphins uh, particularly around New Zealand, although it is a global phenomenon, but I was concentrating on New Zealand. And the reason why I was looking into this was because it didn't make sense to me. Um, the, theory, the, glo- the theory at that time in regards to strandings was due to what they call gently sloping beaches, which mean that the, the navigation systems of the whales and dolphins was, becoming, um, was, was unable to detect... Uh, the, the 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 gradient um, slow in gradient increase towards the land, and that the whales and dolphins would swim and then find themselves beached because they couldn't detect the the gently sloping effect. Now, as I've said to you, I researched the being a sonarman and I understand the technologies of sonar and how it operates. That was just a ridiculous um, theory to me. As we know, dolphins are incredibly intelligent beings. Their brains are far larger than ours and they are far superior. Uh, And especially when it comes to navigating, 
utilizing the natural uh, Earth's magnetic field as a means to navigate. Um, dolphins and whales have laced throughout their blubber what's called magnetite. Um, pigeons have it in their brains, salmon as well, and it, they are able to connect to the magnetic field of the Earth, and they use that as a means to navigate around the globe. So if they are that advanced and connected to nature, there's no way, as far as I was concerned, that the, sl the, sloping, the gently sloping beaches would in any way affect them. But also their behaviors was not natural when they were actually stranding. And of course, there were other theories, which was um, if there's a sick dolphin, then the rest of the, the herd will you know, follow it in, and then they all find themselves stranding. None of that made sense to me. So, and I'm trying to make this as succinct as possible because it is quite a lengthy area just in itself. Uh, I realized, and I called it, that they were getting derailed somehow. So they were following a navigational uh, magnetic field or a force, but it was stranding them. So what was going on? And what happened was I ended up working and investigating very much into uh, a, a very famous person in the field of electrical um, electricity, which is Tesla. Um, mm -hmm. And Tesla, as we know, um, created uh, and understood uh, that the Earth produces uh, natural magnetic fields and so forth. But there's also, so there's a magnetic grid that ran, runs around the globe, uh, often called the anti-gravity grid system, um, which is a natural phenomena which is created by the Earth's magnetic fields. Um, but somehow these, these cetaceans were disconnecting from the natural grid and following a new one. So I then had to move down an avenue of discovering what that was. And I came what um, uh, there was a, a New Zealand scientist called Bruce Cathy. And some of your listeners may know that name. And Bruce Cathy lived, he died a few years ago, but he was actually an, air, an airline pilot for uh, in New Zealand for many, many, many years in the 50s and 60s. And he was uh, really a forefather for what, was, what he wrote books on the anti-gravity system in books called Harmonic 695, uh, Harmonic 33, and so forth. He understood that there was also what's called the Earth's, or the man-made grid system, which it runs along parallel with the, the natural grid, but it's utilizing Tesla technology, and you therefore have offshoots of the main Earth's grid by man-made grid systems. And these are created by the majority of um, power stations that are around the globe, are positioned harmonically so that they interlink with each other and create the Tesla technology, which is uh, well, free-flow energy, but it's a man-made one. And basically, succinctly, the dolphins were being derailed by connecting to these man-made grid systems which run across land. Now, the reason I understood this was um, back in 1989, I was plotting on the New Zealand maps all the areas of strandings around New Zealand, and I suddenly looked and realized I'd seen the same locations somewhere else. So I got a map out that I'd made earlier of all the areas in New Zealand where UFOs were seen mostly, and I superimposed the two maps, and they actually were exactly the same. So dolphins wow. and whales were stranding in the same locations as mass sightings of UFO which meant that these, of course, UFOs do use the anti-gravity grid system 
to log on to or connect to almost like a monorail. And they, that's why they can move at incredible speeds and so forth along this, end, this magnetic field. But they're also, also utilizing the man-made one. But so were the whales and dolphins. They were connecting naturally to what they thought was their normal navigational routes, and they were getting stranded. So I called it the derailment theory. Now, in those days, the leading authority on strandings was a, a woman in England called Margaret Konorska. And she was the one who devised and came up with the gently sloping beach theory, which was very much um, accepted in that particular time. And I made contact with her, and I presented my, my facts the way that I saw it. And to cut a long story short, if you go onto Google now, you'll see that in, back in 1992, she, she changed her theories of stranding to possibly in relation to um, navigational disorientation due to the magnetic fields of the earth along those lines were the words that she suddenly changed so from up till that point it was slo sloping beaches suddenly it became in regards to magnetic influences and disorientations now um, people have said to me in the past did you, did you get a little bit annoyed that she took your your work and has potentially changed it to hers and I said no because for me it doesn't matter you know, if the information comes out, it doesn't matter what source it is, whether it's from me or somebody who is scientific and it can be accepted, because I wasn't. If I came out with these theories to most people in the scientific community, um, they wouldn't really understand it. Although in New Zealand, in fact, there was a lot of acceptance. I actually spoke to, uh, we have over here what's called the Department of Conservation, and one of their leading dolphin researchers uh, who had written many books on the subject was a real advocate for my work and accepted it uh, very much so. Um, so um, that's how I got that information out in relation to that. Um, so, you know, that answers sort of the, the sorts of lines of research that I was doing over the periods of the 80s and the 90s. So um, UFOs, as I said, became a large part of that. And when I find, when I find that if I'm researching very heavily into a particular subject, um, especially UFOs, that's when I draw attention to myself. And I'm not talking necessarily terrestrial, but extraterrestrial. For example, I would wake up uh, suddenly in the middle of the night and I would see a figure standing at the base of my bed, uh, which would then instantly disappear as soon as I was actually consciously aware of it. And even now, as I've been working on the Atlantis work, I'm having the same sorts of experiences, but it's it's, it's not malicious in any way, by the way. It's just I'm being observed by those who are interested in my development and what I'm actually doing. So since I've been working on the Atlantis work, I have all sorts of really interesting um, events happening, um, which I can sort of talk about at, at another time. But it alerts me that I'm on the right track because I'm being observed. But it is not bad. It is, uh, I pick up that it's, it's okay what I'm being observed about, and who's observing me. Okay, all right, so you're not alerted, uh, alarmed. Um, James said that he believes the Mandela effect is a real thing. What do you think of the, the Mandela effect? And uh, uh, my teammate on my Haunted Destinations uh, ghost detective show, Frank Cinelli, uh, he was in this chat room earlier. I don't know if he is in there now. He does a talk on the Mandela Effect, and he will be doing that talk at our Penhurst Paracon in August. So 
you want to see that and you want to pick his brain about the Mandela effect, have at it. Um, but but what do you think about that, David? So the Mandela effect in relation to parallel universes and so forth? Is that is that what it is? Yeah, like um, on the, the, on the Mandela effect. Changing things, like what everyone remembers and what it actually is. You know, um, you, you can ask ten people. You know, what what are the words of the song? The Bernstein Bears. You know, um, oh, what was the song that he always says? Oh, I wish he was still in here. There's a song that we all sing and we all say the same words, but if you read the words to the song, it's wrong. And it's, you know, (laughs) it's things like that. Like, are they changing things to make their future a reality? Or uh, what are are your thoughts? What What do you think it is? Uh, I, I, this is one of the questions. I don't actually have an answer to that particular one because it's an area that I haven't really um, focused in on. So this is actually quite new for me. Um, oh. And that's so why I'm just wanting to understand. I mean, I understand um, uh, if you're talking about, so you're, you're basically asking in relation to experience. My ex- uh, could you just sort of just repeat it so okay. I can understand it a little bit easier? It's like the 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 Bernstein Bears of Bernstein, Bernstein. Oh gosh, it was a spelling <laughs> of. Um, no, I don't really. You know, I I know he talks about it, but I don't really. I I don't do it myself, so I'm not. You know, 100% on it. Um, oh, the, all right. So the figure on the Monopoly game had an eyepiece, but you wouldn't find it in any. Any of them. Oh, all right. So things like that. Okay, yeah. Different, just just things that in, in culture that were like the norm that everybody knew, and then then it was just yes. gone, and like the next, it's like half the people would know it and half the people wouldn't. It, it was just really strange. But that is another subject. And so that's what I'm putting out to you now. Now you got something new to to um to go and and look into. So I love it, things it, like that. Yes. Yeah, so now I want to start talking um, about Atlantis because we are, we're we're like chomping up our time real fast, and I want to get into the Atlantis Rising project that you're working on. Um, Bernstein and Bernstein, yeah, Bernstein, yeah, the the, the spelling, it was different. Um, And and the, uh, and there was some song, it was a song that we all sing, and the words aren't, aren't, aren't right. I'll have to get, someone go talk to Frank Sinelli and Get them back in here. <laughs> so, um, anyway, all right. So, tell us about the Atlantis Rising project. What is that, and uh, what brought you to it? Um, we'll put it this way. I mean, if we were to ask the question, "What do we actually know about Atlantis?" Uh, the answer is historically very, very little. Um, we all have a concept like the Romantic history of Atlantis that we all grew up with. And I know for myself, I always, um, Atlantis was uh, an advanced civilization, but due to egos and uh, manipulations, it came to its, it created its own demise. And, and, and then suddenly due to a cataclysmic event sunk beneath the ocean. And that's pretty much what we've all grown up with. So, we, we really have very little historical information or even any evidence to this place called Atlantis. The first that we've, we ever, we've ever heard uh, about it is by 
you know, the great philosopher um, Plato, um, who, um, if you know Plato, his, he was, yep. uh, his teacher was Socrates. Some of his most yep. famous students was Aristotle. Um, yep. And he is probably cited as being one of the great founders of Western religion and spirituality. So um, he was very, very much in touch with, um, funnily enough, religion and spirituality, which is, it was exactly my upbringing. So I believe that he certainly had uh, a great understanding, but that's the first that we ever really hear about this place called Atlantis. And it came about by um, what's known um, as the Critias Dialogue, um, which is uh, the Critias and the Tamiris Dialogues. I hope I got the pronunciations correct. And yep. they were pretty much um, dialogues, uh, th a set of three dialogues that Plato um, talks about or writes about with these characters, Critias and Tamiris, whether they were actual characters of real people. Historians uh, are still uh, open to that to, to discover whether they were fictional or real. There's not an actual lot of understanding who they were. But in this, this is the first time that we actually read or hear about this civilization called Atlantis. And um, it was um, predominantly in relation to a battle between uh, Athens and the Atlanteans, and that the Atlanteans lost this because the Athenians were much better uh, organized militarily-wise and so forth. So if we are to go with what do we know, the answer is very, very little. However there are some incredibly um, powerful books that have been written um, by some, you know, the likes of Edgar Casey or uh, Rand Flamath, who wrote an amazing book called The Atlantis Blueprint. Um, and they have helped us, uh, people like myself, researchers, to get a better understanding um, about what Atlantis was all about. But from, from Plato's, um, we don't actually... No, we don't really hear a lot about Atlantis historically until round about uh, 1871 when an author, a British author called uh, Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote a book called The Coming Race, um, which is a narrated story uh, or an account about a superior subterranean master race uh, called the Vril. Um, that live um, in subterranean, uh, as a subterranean civilization with subterranean cities, an enormous, incredibly powerful technology, very spiritual that they were. And the reason why they're subterranean was because they were basically forced underground due to a cataclysmic event. So we don't really know anything about from, so we're going for about, you know, um, uh, 350 uh, BC to suddenly 1871 when suddenly there's this uh, book that's been written and it's a very powerful book because the likes of Rudolf Steiner, uh, Helena Blavatsky, uh, William Scott Elliot, they all accepted this book as being based on truth. The Vril Society, of course, is most famously uh, associated with the Germans during the Second World War. And there is a historical event that took place, which is available to be read on, on Google, which is in the 1940s, around about 42, uh, the Germans sent a flotilla to the Antarctic. 
they their their job was to connect or put, create a base of operations there, but ultimately to connect with the subterranean uh, beings that were in that area. Now, uh, the American people will know very much that the Americans heard and knew about this and sent their own flotilla under the uh, the command of Admiral Byrd. And Admiral Byrd was uh, a uh, expert on the Antarctic, sorry, the, the Antarctic area having been there and lived there around about 1928 to 1930, in which he claims he lived with these beings in the Antarctic area. So to connect or, or to, to basically um, deal with the, the, the Nazi threat of them going there, the Americans sent a flotilla as well, uh, in which there was uh, historically there was a uh, connection between all three, there was uh, a battle between all three. The Americans got um, how do we how do the Americans say it? You got your asses kicked, I think is the right <laughs> yep. term. And they limped home. Um, but so that's the first that we really know about um, this uh, encounter with subterranean beings in the Antarctic area. Now, my investigation in this. Uh, over the last few years, really took a turn when I was, and as I said, I've been in the, I've been management of some of the New Zealand's largest security companies. And in 2007, um, I was the manager of a, a, a national company here, uh, based in Christchurch, I was. And one of my guards, um, I had a, a, a large guard division, and one of my guards actually came to see me. Uh, and we actually used to call him the Admiral because he was originally American. Uh, he was an American naval engineer um, back in the 60s. And he was around about 63 when he 63 years old when he worked for me and he was one of my supervisors. And he knew of my interest in UFOs and Antarctica. And he came and saw me in my office and he said that, he said, you don't know this, but I was actually one of the original uh, naval engineers who built the uh, American Antarctic base, which is, called, is known as McMurdo, back in 61. And he told me that he and his, his buddies, as he called them, he said it, most nights we would finish work in the evening and then we would sit on the ice pack watching UFOs buzzing around all over the place. So that certainly caught my attention. Um, and he was very honest and open about this and shared with me other pieces of information as well. But it just um, alerted me to what was going on in that particular region. Now, for those of you who don't know, the connection with Christchurch, which is where I am, is the fact that the United States um, have a, a hangar, a, a, an Air Force hangar, next to our international airport, which is known as Operation Deep Freeze or the Antarctic program. It is the, the result of what happened in 1942, which was known as Operation High Jump, which was this connection between the Americans and this subterranean um, civilization. So Christchurch became a base of operations for the, the, the military, the US military, because they fly directly from Christchurch here, directly to Antarctica, to McMurdo. So this is basically the gateway to Atlantis is Christchurch. Um, and we have ah. here a hangar, as I say, um, where the, the American C-130 Hercules is flying regularly, um, as well as NASA. 
NASA comes here regularly. They have their, right, even today, their 747 is parked next to the hangar, um, and it's here quite often. So that's been in existence since sort of like the 1960s, basically, when Deep Freeze took over, and it has run through the, the US, uh, United States Air Force. So th what's been happening is, and of course we've all seen um, on Google and so forth that due to the ice caps melting, um, there have been images of pyramids and so forth that have been coming up. Now, those images are open for uh, scrutiny because of course there are the experts that will say to you that they, they may look like pyramids, but in fact they're, they're just part of mountainous regions um, that have been exposed um, but certainly, if you look at them, you certainly do see um, the, the distinct shape of these pyramids and so forth. But there's a lot of uh, scrutiny on that. However, what has alerted me to absolutely knowing what they are was an event that happened here in only two years ago, 2016, December 2016. Um, and I'd be interested to know if any of your listeners are aware that in December, uh, around about December the 2nd and 3rd, Buzz Aldrin was in Antarctica together with uh, John Kerry. Now, for those of you, of course, Buzz Aldrin was uh, part of the, the Apollo missions, the second yes. man uh, to, to stand on the, uh, the face of the moon. Right. Uh, but he was together with John Kerry. Now, at that particular time, John Kerry was the Secretary of State for the Obama administration. The purpose and the role of the Secretary of State is he deals with U.S. Foreign, foreign policy and is appointed to, by the Senate to represent the, the, the United States and the President in regards to uh, foreign policies that relate to the welfare of the United States. So that's, that's a quite a profound role. So the question was, what was John Kerry and what was Buzz Aldrin doing in Antarctica? Now, you can certainly read that they were there um, to, to experience being on the ice pack, uh, to, to see uh, they were dealing with um, the effects of um, green, you know, the, the uh, changes of the greenhouse effects and so forth. That's the common subject of why they were actually there. You may also know that Buzz Aldrin had a medical emergency, and he was flown from uh, McMurdo directly to Christchurch um, Hospital. Um, and on the way, he actually tweeted some bizarre tweets, which was some along the lines of uh, rambling, saying, they're there, they're here, they're here. Oh, my God, the pyramids. It's evil. They're here, they're here. Now, within three <laughs> hours, those tweets were deleted. And there was an official statement, which was there was it was not his official uh, tweet, a, a, a Twitter account. It had come from another Twitter account that was fake, and the tweets themselves were not were, were fake. But they had been removed. Now, you can read that and go, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it could, you know, uh, these sorts of things do happen. But I know for a fact that it did happen, and the reason why I know that it did happen was because. A buddy of mine was the head of security for the uh, hospital. And he rang my office and said, you're not going to believe who we've got security looking after at the moment. And I said, well, who? And he said, you know who Buzz Aldrin is? 
I said, yes, the Apollo astronauts. He said, correct. Mm-hmm. He's here. I said, why on earth is he in, in, in with you at the moment? He said, because he took a turn, something happened in Antarctica, and now he's been brought in. And I said, well, what's happened? And he said, he came in rambling, shouting about pyramids. They're there. And all the things that were actually, he had written in his Twitter, he was actually rambling and calling out. And that's why they had to have security around him, because he, it was almost like he'd lost his mind. And he said, so this is a friend of mine saying, he's here and he's rambling, he's screaming and calling out about pyramids on Antarctica, they're there. Um, and I said, okay, that's, that's actually really, really interesting. It explained then why possibly John Kerry was there, because John Kerry was there to negotiate foreign policies with things or peoples or something that was in Antarctica. And then his role there with Buzz was to negotiate. What they were negotiating, that I cannot tell, but we certainly know that something happened and Buzz's experience there and his ramblings and so forth alerted us to what was actually there. So for me, it was absolutely clear um, that that was absolute fact and it did happen. Now, I'd been aware for many years through research that Antarctica was the location for Atlantis. Uh, the American military, through circles that I'm involved with through security, I am aware that the Americans have stated categorically that they located Atlantis. And this was some years ago. And it was the continent of Antarctica. We know, and I'm being as succinct as possible because I know time's going, we know that Antarctica as a continent was not always covered in ice. We know that from the Pure East maps. We know that it was actually a very tropical area uh, and a millennia ago was not, was not covered in ice. So something happened cataclysmically wise to put it in the location it is now and covered in ice um, until now. This then led me to, to try and figure out what had actually happened, what this cataclysmic event was. And this is where we really get interesting. And this is where for some people it may challenge where I'm heading with this. And I understand that. And, I'm, and I'd just like to say in advance, I mean no offense to anybody's philosophies and beliefs about Atlantis. I hope that what I'm going to share now will actually make sense and bridge gaps in other people's informations that um, just it falls into place as it did for me. And okay. it's simply this. Um, round about in the early 50s, an American um, geologist, researcher, by the name of Charles Hapgood, came out with a, uh, an idea, what was called, he called crust displacement. Now, at that particular time, because he was only a, a sort of a minor researcher into geology, he was not considered to be a heavyweight under any circumstances. So he was never taken seriously by his peers uh, at universities and so forth in America. But he realized that, and what he basically claimed, was that the Earth's crust sits on the mantle and can actually slide over the mantle of the Earth and has done so many times. Now, I just want to say his theories are now accepted absolutely by science and by geology as being absolutely fact. But in 1950s, it was poo-pooed completely, as the British say. And he was (laughs) scoffed at and scorned at. And there was only one person who was his advocate, absolutely supported his hypotheses 
and his research, and that was Albert Einstein. So in 1958, Charles Hapgood actually wrote a book on crust displacement in which the, 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 the forward of the book had years earlier been written in support of it by Albert Einstein. So something happened and, uh, around about 12,500 years ago that knocked not just Antarctica, but created all the, 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 the Earth's crust to displace con you know, all continents and all land masses about 3,000 kilometers further south than where they are, sorry, further south now than where they originally were. Around about 12 to 12,500 years ago, something happened and crust displacement took effect and shifted everything south by up to 3,000 kilometers. Now, that means so that then that the, the area uh, that is now... Sorry? Is that why Atlantis sunk? Well, this is when it gets interesting because it didn't actually sink. But I'll, I, I'm, this is all part and parcel of where I'm going with this story. Okay. By a cataclysmic event occurring, crust displacement took effect. The landmass of, of Antarctica moved into the location it is now, and it moved into a cold, frozen climate from a subtropical climate that it was originally. So it got covered in ice. Now, the story says that Atlantis sunk beneath the waves of the ocean. And to a point, that's correct. It's just that it was under miles of ice. Okay? And, of course, we're seeing due to climate change as the ice is breaking away that these objects or these pyramids and this are suddenly being seen again. So in, in retrospect, you know, it did get sunk under the ocean, but not quite the way we think. Now, I understand very much from people who, because the, the actual location of Atlantis has been described as being in many different locations around the world, and there has never been really right. an understanding, is it here, is it there? For example, that it has been the, the west coast of America, right smack in the middle of the, the Atlantic Ocean in the center of the Bermuda Triangle, in the Mediterranean. Yep. Yep. So the question is, which area, are all these areas right? Or are they wrong? Is it true? Are they in that area? Are they then in that area? Are they in that area? The answer is yes to all of them. So how does that make sense? If, how can it be there and how can it be there? Because Atlantis wasn't just a single location. It was a global civilization. Now, if you look back at, I'm from England, um, and in the 19th and 20th centuries of Great Britain, there was a time when Great Britain, or England, covered 25 to 30% of its culture and its, uh, em its, its, um, um, uh, the empire covered 25 to 30% of the globe. The British Empire. So we're talking India, Africa, the Mediterranean, of course, New Zealand and uh, Australia and Canada are all Commonwealth countries. But at that time, the British Empire covered, you know, quarter of the Earth's globe. Now, if you were a foreigner or even from a foreign planet and you arrived in, say, India, you would understandably believe that, that there's British people there, that that was England because the culture's there. The, the empires there, the, the words are there, it's British and so forth. The answer is no, it isn't. So you may even go to Africa and see the same thing. And would you believe that that was the British Empire? The answer is no. The British Empire 
came from a small island called Great Britain and even more so directed out of a city called London. But its culture and its empire and its beliefs and its religions and its methodologies actually surrounded a quarter of the Earth's globe. The Roman Empire at one stage covered an enormous amount right across Europe into England. In fact, London was originally uh, a Roman settlement called Londinium. So if I was in Londinium, would I believe that that was the Roman Empire and the heart of the Roman Empire? The answer is no. But its philosophies and its culture and its military, it's all here, but it stems from a place called Rome. So, all right, but hold on now, hold the, on. If, if, you, if this theory is true and that there's more than one and you have all these different locations of Atlantis, so there are many Atlanteans, correct, is what you're saying? Yes. Why was in no? All right, we do have the the written word of the Romans. We do have the written word of all these other civilizations. Why is there no written more written things about Atlanteans if that was well? The case? You actually do. You you actually do. But we've we, we've been we've been shown and taught that you know that, um, that these are not the case. And of course, you, where you're seeing it is in the architecture, because you have the pyramids you have pyramids all over the world in different countries um, you have architecture you have if you look at some of the the katushas and the writings um, in places that were mesopotamia or the uh, the egyptian hieroglyphs their similarities are so close the architecture is so close the pyramids in their design and their positioning and their harmonics are so close because the Atlantean civilization was a global one and the cultures and the architectures followed. So they are, they're right in front of us in plain sight. We are just brought up that there was no seafaring cultures and civilizations at those particular times and therefore they must be completely separate civilizations. And again, for me growing up, it didn't make sense. It never made sense to me. So the civilizations were global and therefore the locations of Atlanteans and their cultures was global and therefore in all of those areas. But there was a one central area where the Atlantic or the, sorry, the, the Atlanteans were based and that was in the continent of Antarctica. So okay. we now move into why is there this connection for New Zealand? Well, yeah. if, we, if we have cross-displacement, we've all moved 3,000 kilometers or around about 3,000 kilometers to their current locations. New Zealand actually sits on the location of where Atlantis used to be or the continent of Antarctica used to be. And when everything shifted, we shifted into that location. Now, the, the changes that are occurring at the moment, because we're talking about what cataclysmic event occurred. Now, there are many ideas. The one that I've come up with that seems to fit the pattern is what we call polar shift. And I think a lot of people understand what polar shift is. It is scientifically proven. It has happened regularly in Earth's existence. It's not a fabrication. It's literally when our poles switch, polarity. Now, we're actually going through polar shift right now at an alarming rate. And I don't know if you're aware of that, but our magnetic north is no longer it used to be. It's sun about 12 degrees uh, off what, what used to be magnetic north. 
So we're actually going through a polarity change right now. That means that the energies that we're experiencing are changing. And where I think we're feeling the effects of those as it is actually happening. But the polar shift scientifically uh, normally would take about a thousand years plus for the poles to actually reverse polarity. But this is happening at a phenomenal rate. It's not taking a thousand years. It's taking a few years to actually go through a polarity change. Now, the Atlantean technology, and I know this for a fact, the hangar that I spoke about that the U.S. Air Force used here in Christchurch, when the C-130s arrived, and they did this, this was happening a few years ago, they were bringing back with them crates. And the crates they were bringing back contained technology of what was being found in Antarctica. The technology is stored in this hangar in Christchurch. And the reason why I know that is because, when I, again, through security, one of the contracts we looked after was this hangar. So we were seeing this coming through and being stored in there. Mm. Now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting, is the fact that the technology that existed then operates, and this is where Tesla comes in. Tesla knew and designed and created, created Atlantean technology that was operating under specific harmonic frequencies. The harmonic frequencies that the Atlanteans used at that time were used at a time when our polarities were in a different location. So the technology that was used by the Atlanteans hasn't been able to be utilized at all because our polarities switched 12,500 years ago. But they're reverting back now and they're changing back now to the polarities that were existing 12,500 years ago. The technology that the Americans are storing is starting to turn on, and they're wow. able to utilize, to a point, some of the technology. Now, it isn't fully operational because if you know electricity and you have an off-on switch, as you turn a dial from off to on and you do it slowly, you create a, a, a trickle flow of electricity into whatever it is you're powering up until you switch it fully on and then that piece of equipment turns on. Now, with the polarity changes we're going through, as the Earth's polarities are changing, it's creating that same trickle effect. We know, for example, that the pulse of the planet has increased from seven cycles per second to around about 12 to 13 cycles per second. In, in sympathy and a harmonic connection, the pyramids, including the pyramids of Giza, have also started to vibrate and increase um, at a higher frequency to, this, to the same uh, as the Earth itself. Um, they are, they can, they, there's been things like heat plumage or heat plumes. They are picking up using uh, technology and satellite imagery that the pyramids uh, are creating a higher frequency and warming up. And that's been scientifically proven. So the technology um, that is stored here is starting to turn on um, and that's why NASA's been here quite a lot because they, they, they stay here for quite some time. They work with the technology and some of it gets taken back, flown back to the States. And I know that for a fact. So okay. New Zealand, as I said, from a harmonic basis, well, because we occupy the same location, from a harmonic frequency, the harmonics don't change. They stay in the location here. It's just the landmass change. So the region we're in right now, why the Americans put their uh, deep freeze base right here is because this is where it all began. 
It sounds rather interesting. And I, when I first really understood all of this and it came to me, um, it was pretty um, far-fetched. And I must acknowledge, I, it took me a long time to really understand. But what it did do is it started you have an to bridge. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're in there. You're getting all the, the top information on it. So, you know, you, you have a better grasp and you've had a longer time to absorb all this. Than, um, than a lot of us. But now, yeah. if, these, if if that's true, and the Atlanteans, are, if, if, are they an ET race? I mean, would they be coming here from out of space? And are we then, if these things are turning on, contacting those things in space? And what you had referred to earlier about the information that you got about the battles going on in space, is this all connected to that? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, the Atlantean race, um, historically, uh, the story goes you know, many, 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 many thousands of years ago, the gods came to Earth. Uh, the Earth was allotted to different gods to look after and so forth. And that basically civilization or there were demigods and the, the human race. And this is all very much what a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to the show are very much aware of and have followed over the years. For me, yes, the Atlantean uh, civilization, the Atlantic, uh, sorry, the Atlantean culture, uh, the Atlantic or the Atlantean blueprint is, was not specific to this planet. That yes, they did come um, from um, um, you know, uh, different places. Um, I'm not talking necessarily uh, within the same galaxy, so forth. But my belief is yes, it certainly we, we, this was a settlement as the, Atlantic, uh, the Atlanteans settled around the globe so did Earth become a settlement for them. Um, and then, of course, yes. Uh, so that's my belief that, yes, certainly, that, that, you know, and that's what I believe, uh, work on specifically, is that there is that extraterrestrial connection. Um, and much, very much in my teachings when I talk about these things and I do um, uh, workshops on this, that I bring in the ET connection to it. Um, so I uh, yeah so so that I hope that answers that particular question yes. Okay okay, so now okay in in 2010 2011 2016, in Christchurch the Christchurch region went through a number of devastating earthquakes. Um, now is this is this connected to that um, the slipping Or the or the the firing out of Antarctica, basically, is this all connected? Also, the earthquakes, yes. And I mean, I I have to tread carefully because they were devastating. And in fact, in the 2011, we there was a lot of lives that were lost. Um, so it's a very sensitive um, uh, topic, really. And the the reason why it it didn't make sense to me, even the earthquakes were really bizarre. And I don't know if you guys over there were aware of what we went through. I mean, it was, it was cataclysmic in its, in its own right. Um, and, but nothing seemed to follow a normal pattern of behavior. And the reason why I know that was because um, in 2012, we'd actually had uh, a lot of uh, geologists from universities from all over the world came here, and they were researching the whole earthquake events. And when I say events, they were because we had um, the first one was in September 2010. We had a 7.1, which shook the region. Um, 
But the big one came uh, in 2000, February 2011, where we had a 6.3, which devastated the city of Christchurch. And I mean it devastated it. Um, it, it, it flattened it. Um, but wow. it, the strangeness about it was the fact that even though it was a 6.3, which on the Richter scale is pretty powerful, it had what's called ground force motion. And that is the actual motion on the ground level. It was the highest ground force motion of any earthquake in history, which meant that, the, that on the surface we shook so powerfully that it, it devastated the city completely and there were a lot of lives were lost. Um, yeah. it was, and, then, and, and then we had a number of, over the next six months, we had um, uh, a few other major quakes which didn't follow any known historical pattern. And by that, I mean we had a 5.8 and an hour later followed by a 6.3. Now, if you know how earthquakes operate, it's the other way around. You have a 6.3 followed by a 5.8 or a 4.8. You don't have in the same location a, a, a one event and then a larger one. And that happened twice within a period of a few months as well. We then went through over 17,000 aftershocks, which were on a daily basis. And I'm talking every single day we would have anything up to a 4.5 or 4.6 shake. So you can imagine our lives were shaken, literally. And it was very, very challenging times. Now, in um, 2016, November, we had a 7.8 earthquake. Um, which was devastating to um, just slightly further up north uh, from Christchurch is a small coastal uh, town called Kaikoura. And Kaikoura, for a period of months, was completely isolated because the earthquake, which was centralized in that area, devastated. The roads were completely um, um, devastated. They, nothing could get past. Um, but the land around the Kaikoura coast, which is on our... Uh, east coast was thrust up out of the ocean so if you can get grasp an idea what that means it means that uh, the, the region that particular region increased in land mass by this this earthquake so wow. the, the seabed got thrust upwards and it's quite an incredible thing to see now and quite a bit of it um, so these are major events now I was talking because, again, in relation to security, I was talking to the geologists that were coming in, and some of them were from Yale, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge. And the reason why they were here was to understand what the hell was going on, because in their own, their own words, they, none of the earthquakes we had followed any pattern known to geologists worldwide. None of them. It didn't make sense. So they were coming here to try and understand what on earth was going on. Now... Um, interestingly enough, um, in the, the very first 7.1 earthquake, which started all of this, we actually had the military were in town. We had navies from the New Zealand Navy, the American Navy, the Indonesian Navy. They were actually sitting here waiting. It was as though they were waiting. And suddenly when we had this major earthquake, suddenly they all came and helped. And it was rather strange that they were all here. In 2016, with the Kaikoura 7.8 uh, earthquake, 
something else was very interesting that happened. And I'm not stating uh, I understand completely what it was. I'm basing it on information I was given. Um, the, the military, we have just slightly down south from us, about 40 minutes south, we have the largest uh, military base called Burnham. Uh, 300 troops were uh, shipped up to the Kaikoura region. Uh, they closed off Kaikoura from the south and the north, so nobody could come in and out. And they were searching. These were the words that were given to me by somebody I know in the army. They were searching for something in the woodlands and the forest just slightly uh, west of Kaikoura. There's a mountainous range and there's woodlands and forests and so forth. And the troops were looking for something. Now, at the same time this happened, one of your U.S. warships was actually in Auckland and was dispatched instantly to come into Kaikoura. Now, the, the warship itself, and I mean, I, I laugh at this one, and I, I'm not actually stating that this is actually uh, relevant, but uh, the ship that came in is actually an, um, uh, a, a known ship because it was actually uh, in a film uh, with Liam Neeson not long ago, which was called Battleship. I don't know if you remember that film where um, the um, extraterrestrials crash into the ocean and they create a, uh, an impenetrable force field around the Hawaiian Islands. And there's a battle between three U.S. War uh, sorry, uh, uh, two, uh, one Japanese and two U.S. warships that are within the, sh the shield have a battle with these extraterrestrial uh, beings. One of the ships that gets um, in the film that gets destroyed is the USS Samson. And funnily enough, that was the exact ship that sailed into Kaikoura to assist wow. with what was going on there was the USS Samson. Now, you could look at that and go, well, it was just, um, yes, it was in the movie and it was just a coincidental. I looked at it with a smile and thought, well, is that interested in a film, the USS Samson is dealing with extraterrestrials. And here it is in our waters right now in Kaikoura dealing with something very strange that's going on. Um, you know, if you can, if, 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 that's just the way that I saw it. But anyway, um, <laughs> the earthquakes themselves were bizarre. They didn't follow any pattern. It changed the, um, the energy in this region. And when I mean the energy, uh, I mean that, again, being in the security industry, um, I was running at that time a patrol company. And in the region or the epicenter area of where the quake occurred, our patrols were losing communications. Their comms between their uh, radios was being lost. It never happened prior, but it happened afterward, which meant that the magnetic field or the magnetic energy in that particular region had changed. So um, um, a lot of strange things were happening in relation to the earthquakes. The, the geologists were saying they couldn't understand it. They didn't believe that it was, it didn't seem natural. And I think that was the key word that I picked up on that they were saying and that it didn't feel natural. But the energy in this region, as I said, has, has, has changed a great deal since those quakes. And therefore, the technology that is being brought in by the, the Americans from Antarctica, again, is starting to operate a lot more. Now, the question is, does the technology have any effect on the earthquakes? And that's the big question. Um, did, it, did it have an effect? Um, is that part of the technology, which is, does it create these events? I'm not 100% on that, because I don't know 100% what the technology is that they've actually brought in. All I know is that it's stored here, they are operating it, and it is, is having an effect in the region. So wow. just to summarize all of this, for me, it was that 
this region of what's known as Canterbury is the region that we sit in, of which Christchurch is uh, one of the main cities within it. The area that we're sitting in right now was the original area that Atlantis occupied up until about 12 to 12 and a half thousand years ago. The resonating frequencies that operate all the technologies are turning back on due to polar shift. And therefore, uh, but the other interesting thing is, is that I meet people all the time from all over the world that are moving to this region because they feel drawn to the area. And when I talk to them about why they're being drawn into a, an earthquake zone, basically, they don't necessarily have an answer until I start talking about Atlantis. And 9.9% of the time I've spoken to people, and that, by the way, there's a lot of people from America that are here now and living here. Um, well, you invited us the world. there already. <laughs> Sorry? So you invited us to come live there already. I did, <laughs> I did. Um, I did indeed. So why would These you do are that people who, because <laughs> they're, having, they're having a, uh, a connection unconsciously to uh, a place and a, an event that occurred here originally. It's like the old souls of Atlantis are being drawn back to the place where it all began. And when I talk to people about it who are coming here, they suddenly have one of those sort of aha moments, I call it, or some may, people may call it an eureka moment, where suddenly they realize why they're here. And it just seems to make sense. So the more people who have spoken to me about the fact that they are drawn here and that it's something to do with Atlantis. It, it, it makes sense to me. It confirms what I feel and what I believe. It confirms my research, but it also confirms to them why they're being coming here and why they're being drawn here. Because for me, um, that's why I call it Atlantis Rising, because this is once again the area where the new Atlantis, I used to call it new Atlantis, you can call it whatever you like, really. It doesn't necessarily have to be Atlantis again. It could be something different. But for me, this is ground zero. This is where it was. This is where it originated from. The energies harmonically are here. And the old souls of Atlantis are literally being drawn back to where it all began. Why? Because it's going to happen again. But this time, we've got to understand what is the Atlantis blueprint. And that's what I'm working on now. What was the original blueprint of Atlantis, what was its idealism, what was its spiritual culture, what was its methodologies, what was it really all about? Because we're all moving towards that particular place in our lives and time in our lives where we want change, where we know change is coming. For me, um, this is a very important place to be. And in fact, um, I just jumped back to 1988, uh, a, uh, a wonderful American... Um, I had a, an astrology tape done by an American astrologist called John Ramsey. I wish I could find him. I never knew where he disappeared to. John Ramsey did an astrology tape on me back in 1988 in which he talks about um, past lives that I've had, but he also talks about New Zealand in the future. And I, will, uh, and I play his tape fairly regularly. He talks about New Zealand. He says in his own words, New Zealand is going to be a global leader in the future of mankind. And then he huh. said, and this is where I uh, talk about the Kaikoura earthquake, he said in a lot of uh, continents and land masses around the globe, due to the earth changes, a lot of areas are going to go down under the ocean, but New Zealand is going to increase 
in landmass because it of the global changes. And it's, well, it did it in a small way, but it, he's absolutely right. It is, and it has happened. He mm-hmm. said because of this, and he didn't specify, but I, and I understand that now, he said you know, that New Zealand was going to be a global leader. Now, for me, I've always taken that to heart because right now I can certainly believe that if we're going to create a new Atlantis, that that will certainly be the global leading means of humanity's change for the better, which I know a lot of your listeners who, who feel so. it in their own way know it. Well, you've probably spoken about it for years, about the, the ascensions and the fact that we're moving towards a new energy, uh, a better time, out of you know, thousands of years of darkness into the light. Well, I've had 45 years of this, and I have seen the understandings and the technologies of information change dramatically since I was five years old to being 51 years old now. So I've seen uh, all these changes and I've been aware and part of organizations and cultures that have continuously spoken about this incredibly new era that we're moving into, the new energy, this, you know, uh, and this is, and for me, it absolutely, this is ground zero for where it's going to happen. And it'll be, um, it'll spread out. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean everybody has to move to New Zealand all of a sudden, although it'd be lovely to see everybody here. But there is a growing culture here in this region of people who are like-minded. There's a very powerful spiritual connection with people here that are dear friends of mine um, that absolutely feel and know why they're now here and are building towards this particular future which I call Atlantis Rising. Now, uh, what form that takes right now, I can't give you the answer. I'm still working on it on a day-by-day basis. What Atlantis, the Atlantis Rising is going to look like for our future. All I can tell you is that it's going to happen and people are being drawn to Because I can't do this alone, by the way. You know, even though this is something that is very, very powerful for me and I truly know that I synchronistically have been on this direction on this path for this very reason it's something that i just cannot do alone it is too big it is too monumental but the people that are around me now who are absolutely drawn to the subject uh, are helping me out in the ways that they can Um, and i'm so i'm seeing the growing movement in this and what i'm really hoping in being part of your show is the people that are listening you know, I've heard what I've said, and then, it, as I said, it builds a bridge of, it gives people those aha moments. Think, okay, I've researched this, and it made sense, and now I see now that, that bridges and connects that. That yeah, that that does make sense. For others, it may be um, make no sense whatsoever, and uh, I understand that because I came from that as well. And it's, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this uh, as as openly as this because, as you can appreciate, it takes. You know, you put yourself on the line whenever you share something that is absolutely powerful and personal to yourself. You put your life and your, and your well-being and even your, you know, your, your philosophies on the line when you present well, something of such, of such important nature. But then again, so did Einstein when he presented the theories of relativity. He was scorned and scoffed. Now we understand right. it. So did Newton. So did Charles Hapgood. All your so are the, based on facts. I mean, the fact is the polarization is changing. The facts 
are, you know, these earthquakes happen. The facts are, you know, you, you're you're basing all these things on fact. So it's not yes. too far-fetched. I mean, you know, you, you're pulling it all together. It's, I mean, you've just spent all the time. You've done it. You've done the research. You've lived it. And you've culminated it. And, it, and it's here. And it's now. And, um, no, the, it's important to get the message out. I totally believe that. Um, you know, it's a it's a... A definite, you know, information overload for for me, for you know, probably a lot of other people. Um, you know, some people are like, oh yes, 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 I am connecting the dots now. Um, Nicole here has been connecting the dots in the chat room, like you know, pretty much through the entire show. So I I would hope that that would be the end goal. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And of course, look, you you. To try and talk about this in two hours, with uh, I've tried to cram as much in as I possibly can into two hours. It extends. I, I mean, the, the the introductory talks I do are a minimum of four hours, and that's just the introductory talk. So I you can, can appreciate that. You know, it, this this is this is an accumul- this is an accumulation of 45 years of my experiences in the spiritual world, personal development world, religious world, whatever. Um, and of course, uh, it's having life experiences. I used to live in Israel, you know, as I said, and I had incredibly powerful experiences being in that culture and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and again, it's about taking all this information, digesting it, as you say, assimilating in it, and taking on board and connecting the dots to what your, you know, each person's individual's philosophy and beliefs, and seeing like what, when, what I've done is how does that resonate for a better word with you with your listeners to us does it make sense um and that's why it's lovely to meet people face to face and talk to them because then there's a much greater flow of information that can come um which when you're trying to cram everything into a very short space of time and i do appreciate the two hours you've given me by the way um, it, it is, and as you've said, it's information overload. And I've had those experiences many, many times over my over the years. Little notes all over the place because I'm going to be um, I'm going to be in touch with you because I, I have um you know I, I want to continue this conversation uh, between you and I because I do have like Absolute, I, I'd I, love to a few a whole a whole a whole bunch of questions I'd really like to ask you. Um, our show well, I'm though, sure there is. Have, yeah, I'm sure. Two minutes left, and uh, and and this time did fly by. And uh, I, I appreciate you, what you've done and what you've shared with us, and your your experiences are phenomenal. They're they're just out of this world. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and 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 as sort of a cliche, they're just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> right, I, I believe it. You know, but if people want to. I would have definitely set up like a series that we could do maybe a few weeks in a row or something and, and, and gone a little bit more in depth on a couple of these uh, individual subjects. Um, but, however, I do want to say thank you so much, uh, you know, being being here. And um, is there a way people can get in touch with you? Yeah, I was just going to say um, there is an Atlantis Rising Facebook page Um which I put information onto, um, they to get to it. I'm, I'm quite happy for, uh, I would love people connecting with me on Facebook. Um, so they can basically go onto Facebook, look up my name, David Arkenstone Barnett. Um, they'll instantly see who I am. And if they want to 
connect with me through friend connection. I love connecting with people and chatting that way. And from there, they can go connect through to the Atlantis Rising Facebook page. They can connect to that and and like that. They get all the latest information. So I would love to connect with people that are listening in. Um, And if they're ever deciding to come to New Zealand, they'll always be welcomed to, 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 you know, to come here. Um, And, um, yeah, it'd be lovely to connect with you, you know, with you all. Absolutely. Okay. Ten seconds left. Okay. Next week, my my um, my guest is Stephen McFadden. We're going to be talking about the tales of the whirling rainbow. Uh, very interesting show that will be. I don't have enough time to tell you about it, but thank you, David. Uh, thank you for joining me in the Fox Den, and I will see you all next week, eight to ten Eastern Standard Time. Thank you very much. Please share the video. I pre- I appreciate it. Good night, David, and I'll be talking soon, okay? Thank you, Gina, for the opportunity, and we look forward to speaking again soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now, and bye to everyone.